Let's turn to Romans 5 today, please. We've been on a schedule where we do every other Thursday, and this month we'll have Wednesday coming up, and then the following week, September 12th, we'll have Wednesday, and then Thursday, a special treat. The Reverend Philip Henry will be doing his power gospel. No classic rewinds. You've got to do new stuff going forward. Phil's down here with his wife, Beth. She's really into bodybuilding and uh, so building. <laughs> I tortured her even before Phil married her, so I continue that. And I know you wanted me to mention your birthdays next week, but that's next week. That's September 9th. I memorized it because she texted me so many times and said, please, please remember my birthday and tell everybody I'm really into bodybuilding. So he's going to get me back with a vengeance. I don't know if I should be here on the 13th. High energy. High energy that's right. For me, getting things done, it's easy. We're also going to go to Titus chapter 3. I promised, sort of, not promised, but I indicated in our first message of of all time in Romans, Romans the epistle, that the pastoral epistles would be very strong in their interpretive value for Romans. The pastoral epistles have many purposes. Among them is tremendous summaries of the gospel the gospel of the glory of Christ, and that's what I want to preach today. The song, Vicki, was also quite remarkable. The God will provide the lamb comes all the way from Genesis 22, 8. And as we've been finding in our pincer strategy of Romans, the epistle, which is a strategy that I tried experimentally, as people in the military would know, usually, in fact, it's almost a fixed law that your plans fall apart. The first shots fired in a combat situation, all your plans fall apart. But this plan for studying Romans from the left and the right flank has so far panned out very well. And as we've been seeing, right at the heart of Romans, in the very heart and center, the very center verse, in fact, is Romans 8.31, in which God is said to be for us, God for us. That became a very prominent theme among the early theologians, they called it pro nobis, Latin for for us, God for us. And in 832, of course, God provided himself the lamb. In Genesis 22, 8, God spared Abraham's only son or his son Isaac, through whom the promised seed would come. But in Romans 832, God did not spare his own son, which is the seed that was promised And therefore, God did provide himself a lamb. And that means that God himself was the lamb in Christ Jesus. That God had selected one from the flock, as he promised in Genesis 22, 8, one from the flock. And we are the flock. We are the people, the flock of his pasture. We are the sheep of his pasture. One of the sheep, one of human beings, became the lamb. God and man in one person whose self-humbling act is the salvation of all of humankind and all creation. 
And no one would dare, I don't think anyone would dare limit the extent of his redemption on the cross. God has provided himself as the lamb. God has provided his unspared son as the lamb. The heart and center to which we are pushing from both flanks of Romans, one through four on the left, 12 through 16 on the right, which we're almost completing. And this is Operation Delta, right to the heart and center. It happens that in my files, if you want to call them that, on my computer, I have Romans arranged now in four separate parts. The first is I call Romans Alpha, the Alpha operation. Second is Romans Beta, the third Romans Gamma, which I finished this past week. And now we are in Romans Delta. And Delta speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Their triunity in their philanthropy for man, their love for man, and that it is a triune philanthropy, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Delta also indicates a, an invasive movement of the gospel for the righteousness of God, which is his saving act in Christ, is apocalypsed by the gospel. That means it's invasively revealed. It invades the present evil age to rescue us. As Galatians 1.4 says, Christ died for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. And as Romans 13 tells us to read, the, read Romans with the light on, the scripture says, put on the armor of light. Because you know what time it is, or you should. The night is far spent. That is, that evil age has just about had its day or its night. The darkness is passing away, 1 John 2, 8. The true light is already shining so that even now we can live the life of the coming age in some very meaningful measure by the Holy Spirit and by our co-crucifixion, co-burial, co-resurrection, and co-ascension with Christ. Even now, even now, we can live in a God-approved livingness, which is the life of the coming age with the Holy Spirit pouring forth the love of God in our hearts, as Romans 5, 5 says, that produces a livingness that God is pleased with, his own love, the gift of his own love poured out into our hearts, the love that he demonstrated when he gave his son and did not spare him from the consequences and wages of the sinfulness of all mankind. He did not spare him the consequences, the terrible, unspeakable harvest, the wages of sin, which is an absolute death in which he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, as always, on Saturday night and almost every other night, I go to prayer with this, go to bed with this prayer. When I go to bed, I go to prayer. I go to bed and almost to sleep with this prayer on my lips. Wake me up with a thought from your mind. As Isaiah 50 and verse 4 says, he wakens me morning by morning and gives me the ears of a learner and therefore the tongue of a learned disciple. And he has answered it. This morning I woke up with the one sentence on my mind, and it's the weakness of God 
is stronger than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. I was then astonished, first of all, that does away with the message I prepared, although there's still going to be that. I will give you a mouth and wisdom in the hour that you need to speak, is what he says, and that seems to be true almost all the time for me. But the weakness of God is stronger than men. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, appears right in the heart of a passage of Paul which he calls the word of the cross. The word of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are, in other words, still under the control of the apocalyptic power of sin. It's foolishness to the philosopher, foolishness to the so-called scientist, foolishness to many Christian theologians and to many Christians who do not understand the universal impact of the cross of Christ because they don't comprehend the infinite depth of sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Their ignorance of the universal horizon is due to their inability to grasp, and we all have that in some measure, to grasp the infinite depth of the love of Christ, which was demonstrated on the cross. The weakness of God is stronger than men, and that means that God's weakness is the strength of God's love. God's weakness is the strength of God's love. God's love is stronger than men. It doesn't say God's wisdom or God's weak. It says God's weakness is not. It doesn't say stronger than the, the strength of men. It simply says the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakness of God is the strength of his love. It's called weakness because that love was demonstrated in a moment of total weakness. As it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Christ was crucified in weakness. That weakness is a very strong Greek word, asthenes, with the total inability, total weakness, total incapacity, total weakness. But yet he lives by the power of God the total omnipotence of God. The power of God's love manifested in the weakness in which Christ was crucified is stronger than men's ability to resist it. See, that fans out that statement. The power of God's love, which was manifested in the weakness in which Christ was crucified, is stronger than men stronger than mankind, men and women, and their ability to resist. In other words, God's love is stronger than the will of man. Christ's weakness is not just weakness. Oh, he was weak. Christ's weakness is not just weakness, but a manifestation of the strength of God's love. I can't know the strength of God's love until I see the weakness in which Christ was crucified. Christ's weakness is not just weakness, but it's a manifestation of the strength, the eternal strength of God's eternal love. 
So the first three increments of Romans the epistle, which I call reading Romans with the light on, appear as alpha, beta, and gamma sections. Today, delta. And delta will pursue the center of Romans where the unchained gospel is revealed. Paul says, I might be in chains, 2 Timothy 2.9, but the word of God is not chained. The unchained gospel. It's what's going to save Christianity from perishing. Christendom, as it's called, where people are leaving in droves, thank God, because it's, a, it's being replaced by the true thing, by the real thing, by the authentic message of Jesus Christ, in which man's will is not elevated over God's love, in which Christ's will is the issue in eternal salvation, his will to be obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion, an obedience which led to his justification by God in resurrection. And in his resurrection and his justification, I read the Bible where it says all humankind is received justifying life by his resurrection, by his obedience, Romans 5.19. That's the gospel. The gospel needs to be unchained from the constraints of denominationalism from group biases, from the pride and arrogance of human achievement, and from man's wisdom. I love what Paul said. I'm boasting about something, he said, and it's this, and the testimony of my conscience bears witness to it. I have not lived among you by fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Boasting in grace is bragging about an action of God on behalf of us, not upon our actions for God. And so the Delta reveals what I call Trinitarian philanthropy. Now, philanthropy is an amazing word because as far as I know, it's only used once. And if something's used hundreds of times, I pay special attention to it. Something's used once, I pay even more attention to it. Because it becomes like one word around which everything else centers. The word in the Greek is philanthropy. P-H-I-L-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-A. Plan ahead. Philanthropia. And of course that comes right to our language as philanthropy. What I'm going to be moving toward here, and I announced that I would be, philanthropy, or we get the word philanthropic from it, it's from Greek philos plus anthropos, of course, love for mankind. And God's philanthropy was manifested at a certain time in history, and that philanthropy will be manifested universally in a time that we like to call the last judgment. One of the wonderful messages of the unchained gospel is that moment called the last judgment, which we've almost been trained to look at with dread, is what the Bible tells us to look forward to with heads held high in joyous anticipation. The best day in your future is the last judgment. 
The best day in the future of God's creation is the last judgment. The best day of your life is a future day called the day of Christ Jesus, called the last day, called the day of God. And it's the day when God sets everything right, when victims receive their justice, when perpetrators receive righteousness and justification, and the whole creation receives the transforming judgment of God. What some people saw on Mount Calvary, which was the manifestation of God's philanthropy, all flesh will see in the last judgment. All flesh will see the manifestation of God's philanthropy shown in Jesus Christ in the last judgment. Now, there are many ways to approach this, and this is where the challenge comes. When I receive a word from the Lord like this, the weakness of God is stronger than men, which is simply a verse, then the challenge comes. How do you look at this verse? How do you appreciate this verse? How does this verse join up with other verses? How does it correlate with other verses? How do you fan it out into the gospel message? How does it apply to the hearts and minds of believers in this congregation? How does it apply to me first? How do I apply it? Well, the delta that we're in now reveals the Trinitarian philanthropy of God, which is God's love as the principle of God's saving action. And when I say principle, I mean source, origin, grounds, foundation. God's love is the principle of God's saving action of mankind and of creation. Now, with this, I'll do what I always do, look to the scriptures first, look also with appreciation to men and women in the theological field whom God has granted insights. It's all a collaboration, thank God, and we're all standing on the shoulders of many who have gone before us, both prophets and patristics. And so I translate Romans 5.1 this way, and this is how we begin the center of Romans, which is a double center, Romans 5.1 through 8.39, and then also Romans 11.1 through 11.36. You'll find a double climax there. At the end of Romans 8.39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. At the end of 11.33.36, all things have been come from God, and they are through Christ, and they come back to God. It's a revelation of his universal mercy. Kicked off by 1132, God has shut up in disobedience all humankind. That's all humanity in all of its times. In order to have mercy upon all. And that is God's mercy. If you look at it another way, in Ephesians 2.4, it says, But God, in his great love and abundant mercy... God intervened in his great love. Romans 5, 1 through 11 speaks of his great love and abundant mercy. Romans eleven thirty two to 36 speaks of his great mercy. And so this double center begins with God's great love and it ends with God's abundant mercy, universal mercy, we could say. So the section we're in in Operation Delta is an invasion right to the heart of the matter, which is the lamb that God has provided, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of a small elect. Wait a minute. That's not what it says. 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of those who believe. No, doesn't say that either. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of those who behave. Nope, doesn't say that either. It says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging their sins to them. David describes this on an individual basis in Romans 4, on the left flank of Romans, when he says, he describes the righteousness of the man or the woman, we could say, but he's speaking for himself, the righteousness of the man to whom the Lord will not, or the blessedness, actually, the bliss of the man to whom the Lord will not charge sin. So blessed is that man to whom the Lord will not charge sin, whose sins are covered, And he uses that word covered, epikalupto, the opposite of apokalupto. The startling revelation of God's gospel is that he has not unveiled, but veiled the sins of the world under the cover called the mercy seat where the blood of the lamb was shed for us. And that's therefore how blessed and blissful is the person to whom the Lord will not impute sin. But if we take this on a universal level in 2 Corinthians 5.19, we'd have to say blessed is the world because he doesn't impute their sin either. Why? Why? Because that universal horizon only exists because of the infinite depth of the center. God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, it says. God is for us. God is for us. Ezekiel 36, 9, I am for you, God says. Behold, look, I am for you. If we titled Romans by some title this morning, I'd title it that. Behold, I am for you. What's God saying in Romans? Behold, I am for you. And he goes on to say, you will be tilled and sown. That is, you will have a life that will produce a harvest of righteousness because of my grace. I am for you. God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? The adversary? Is God against us? No, God justifies. Is Christ against us? No, he died for us. Can an adversary stand against this? No. I read in Revelation 12, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, was thrown out and down. And I read in John 12, Jesus was lifted up and took with him when he went up the sin of the world, which he then took away. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed, ultimately, is the world whose sins are covered whose sins have been taken away. That's the message of the gospel. It applies to everybody. It appeals to everybody. It's for everybody. God is for us. Well, who does that mean? Romans 8.31, in the heart, in the center, in the central verse. There's 217 on the left of it, 217 on the right of it. Right in the center, God is for us. But in 8.32, it says he demonstrated this for us-ness, by not sparing his son, but freely giving him over for us all. Pantone, says the scripture. The last word in Revelation in the Greek manuscript. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, saving grace, be with all. Pantone. God is for us all in Romans eight thirty one to 32. Yes, I'll shout it. 
because I'm commanded to. Shout aloud and spare not. This doesn't spare the flesh because people want to, in some way, attribute their own will or work to salvation. They want to show that salvation, if it's not of their own work, they got to make it of their own will. And it isn't of him that wills or of him that runs. It is God who shows mercy, says Romans 9, 16. Yes, I'll shout it. Why? Because it was whispered to me in the dark closet of my study. And he says, what I have whispered to you in the dark closet of your study, shout from the housetops. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm not upset, just loud. So this is the message that breaks down every single barrier of those who say, I am of Paul, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Petros, and I, even I, I'm of Christ, meaning I am and you're not. It breaks down every barrier of whether it's Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian or Tetelestai. It's a barrier breaker. It's a wall breaker. It's a game changer and a wall breaker. This message is the gospel unchained. You can chain, you can slander, you can malign, you can even step all over their blue suede shoes of the messengers of this gospel, but you cannot chain it. And this is my confidence. Whatever is done from, to me from now on in this world doesn't matter because the gospel's already been released. It's unchained. So that's what Paul said. He was in prison. He said, I'm wrapped in chains. Isn't it weird that I'm an ambassador from another kingdom? And usually ambassadors enjoy immunity, diplomatic immunity in the countries which they are representing that other country. But it's strange. I'm an ambassador of Christ from the kingdom that's not from here, and I'm in chains. I guess diplomatic immunity doesn't apply to the preachers of the gospel. And the first ones that will chain them up and throw them into a dungeon are people who call themselves Christians, some of whom carry scepters, and some of whom do worse evils and cover evils that are unspeakable. Evils, if you ask Jesus to comment on them, he'd say, well, it's better to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the deepest sea than to offend one of these little ones. Now, that's what Jesus says. The Pope might say something different. Monsignor so-and-so might say something different, and bishop or father so-and-so might say something different. But that is what Jesus said. That's what he thinks of it. So if that's how bad that is, think about how bad the death of Jesus was for those people. That's why I don't like some of this stuff. Some of the universalists today are so paltry and pathetic and effeminate because they don't get to the raw guts of the cross. They want to make it a political message for victims, but they don't want to include the perpetrators in God's redemption. The whole thing that makes God's love so awesome is that his love isn't the kind of love that lays its life down for a righteous man or gives its life for a good person. It's the love of God that he demonstrated when while we were still in the desperate sickness of our inability and ungodliness, Christ died. That's God's love. He dies for the perpetrators. He died for his murderers. He died for those who screamed for his crucifixion. And he, he forgave those who judged him and slandered and maligned him because they just don't know what they're doing. 
Now, I hate to, I hate to make a personal issue, but this has come home to me recently because I hear, and I really don't like to hear it because I'm just like anybody else. I don't want to hear bad stuff said about me. Who does? But then it comes to you sooner or later, or someone says it, or a friend says he heard someone say this, and you go, and so it hurts. And so what I do is I go to God, and I say, what am I supposed to do this about this? And he assured me of something. Some of your colleagues are attacking you because they don't know the message yet, so they don't know what they're doing, so forgive them. So I said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking against. So, what a relief that was. It was. It was a relief. It reminds me of Lynn, your message on forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive me. I forgive them. Now, if you start saying bad stuff about me because you, you know this message, I'm not going to forgive you. That's unforgivable. You know, you, you know what you're doing. No, I'm not, that's so. So Romans, <laughs> Romans 5. In the Delta, we're in the Delta now. We have the Trinitarian philanthropy of God. God's love is the principle of God's saving action. Now, another thing. You make God's justice the lead in the Delta, you're going to miss the message. You make God's love. God's love is the big idea here. God may be just as an adjective, but he's love as a noun. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. And he demonstrated this love in sending his son to be an expiation for our sins. I knew I'd go this in a different direction. So here's a circle. The big circle is love. God is love. Here's the center of the circle. In, within the circle, not really the center, but within the circle is justice. So justice is rooted in, it's, it's in the bigger picture of love. And so we have another circle. Let's call it mercy. And in the center of mercy, there's justice. And let's make it a, a third circle. Let's say there's a word propitiation. And propitiation is confusing because some people make it to mean God has to be satisfied in his wrath because he really hates the human race. He's really angry. So he sends his son Jesus to punish him instead of us. That's not what propitiation means. But it's better to describe it as expiation. Because expiation means he nullified sin. He threw it out. He put it away. He took it away. He took it up and away with him. The substitution that we're talking about when we talk about his substitutionary death isn't Jesus being substituted in child sacrifice like a pagan deity has to punish a child with death to let everybody off the hook. That's not it. God has philanthropy as much as his son, as much as the spirit. They're together in this. They suffer together in this redemption of humankind. 
They have a Trinitarian agreement on philanthropy. And what you don't know yet, perhaps, but will know, and what the church at large needs to know, is that the so-called last judgment is a demonstration of God's philanthropy to mankind. It's the most humane act of transformation and deliverance and rectification and setting things right. The last judgment is not a day to be dreaded. It's a day to be anticipated with fantastic confidence and hope and joy. And just like the old singers used to say back in the 40s, and they used to listen to the song, I'd never got it. Rejoice, everybody get happy, the judgment day is coming. What? That's a, that to me, I'm thinking, you're telling me to rejoice about the worst day that's ever going to happen. But that songwriter knew that it's, you better get happy because God's bringing the judgment day because the judgment day is a day of happiness. So I had a message already, and it changed. My message was going to be called, The Last Judgment, Oh Happy Day. And if you ever want to get elevated and your head lifted by God, then listen to the Edwin Hawkins singers sing that song, Oh Happy Day. If you can't be happy at the end of that song, you're dead. Imagine that, the last judgment, colon, Oh, happy day. Because the same philanthropy that was demonstrated when God gave his son and his son bore our sins and he became sin for us, that same philanthropy will be revealed without sin being in the picture. We will come again without sin. And I was also going to hit about Hebrews 9.27. Remember that? You're supposed to get scared by that. It is given to men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You know what? That's one of the most glorious, happy things in the world. Once to die, then the judgment. Once to die, then the judgment, the transforming philanthropic judgment of God. That's supposed to be happy news. And people use that to say, yeah, well, the Bible says once you die, then there's the judgment. You're going to hell and all the rest of that. They missed that verse by a million miles. Because the verse right before it says Christ appeared once at the turn of the ages. Suntalia means at the end of one age and the beginning of another. At the hinge of the ages. The cross is the axis on which the two ages turn and change. Once in the end of the ages Christ appeared to put away sin. All of it. To put away sin by the offering of himself. And therefore, 927 only supports that once and for all, just as it's given to people once to die, then the judgment. So Christ died once, and it was a judgment to take away sin. Atheteo is the word. Remove it. Abolish it. Take it away. Make it not to be anymore. That's expiation. So expiation's the big circle. Then we have propitiation. That doesn't mean that God is, has to be satisfied because he's angry. But propitiation means that God is satisfied that his son 
endured the final ultimate harvest of misery that sin would have brought the whole human race to. That's what he's satisfied about. His love is satisfied, not his wrath. It doesn't say God was so damn mad he sent his son. It said God loved the world so much, all of them, the perps and the vicks, the victims and the perpetrators. He loved them all so much that he gave his son. And not only that, that whosoever believes in him in time, the one whose faith is evoked by this message in time gets double privilege. They not only not perish under the control of sin, but they actually have the life of the coming age even now, which they will have completely then. That's not a salvation from hell verse. That's a salvation from the sin's control of the human being in time. You believe in the act of believing and continuing in participation with Christ's fidelity means that you no longer perish. You're no longer under the apocalyptic control of sin as a power. That's called perishing. Instead, you have or experience or live the life of the coming age now, even now, that's why we go to GAL, God-approved livingness. God-approved livingness arises out of this gospel. You don't have this gospel, you don't have God-approved livingness. You're in a critical mode of others. You're in a correctional mode of others. You're Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. And I'm using the you advisedly with three fingers coming right back here. Been there. Did that. And got the robe. Not the t-shirt. The robe. Romans 5.1. Therefore, un. That little word un, O-U-N. That little word un. O-U-N. Infers everything from Romans 1.1 1, 1, all the way to 4.25. It takes up the whole entire argument on the left flank of Romans. That has a double climax to it. Romans 3.25, the hilasterion, the mercy seat, where God in his faithfulness justified his son in 3.26 in his resurrection. Double climax, Romans 4.25, just before 5.1. He was handed over for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. And therefore, it says, therefore, being, having been justified or set right on account of faithfulness. The word here is ekpistios. I'm going to do this much later in the, the, not in this message, but in down the road, because this exegesis can go on for hours. He uses the word ekpistios, meaning therefore, having been set right on account of faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness, not yours. The whole message all the way up through 425 talks about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that justified not only himself in resurrection, but all humankind. Therefore, having been set right on account of faithfulness, look at this now. It goes on to say, let us enjoy peace with God. It doesn't say we have peace. We do. That's already assumed. 
but it says, let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ means it's his faithfulness that we get justified by, rectified by, set right by. Let us go on to enjoy peace means you groups that are against each other fighting, let's enjoy peace together. Harmony, a wall-less harmony, a barrier-less harmony with each other. And that's what he's after all through Romans. The breaking down of the barriers that segregated people into groups, Jewish Christians from Gentile Christians. And there's a thousand different barriers that we have today in our society. All of them get knocked down. All of them get knocked down by the gospel of the glory of the Christ who will fill the whole earth. Now, let's go to Titus 3, 4. Skipping a lot of stuff that I'll probably hammer out in midweek services or subsequent Sunday services. Let's look at Titus 3, 4, because this is the second thing that slammed home. Again, the third circle. Remember, expiation, putting away sin, putting it away, Hebrews 9, 26. It was done at the cross, which is the turning or the axis point of the ages. The old age coming to an end, the new messianic age having been inaugurated but not completed. It'll be completed in the parousia, in the coming of Christ, in the last judgment. Oh, happy day when the philanthropy of God that a few people saw on the cross of Calvary when Christ was crucified, all human beings will see in all times because all times become simultaneous in the day of God and all flesh risen from the dead sees and experiences the salvation of God all at once a salvation that then goes on forever and ever and ever and ever in a life that is so fantastic that it, dis- it defies description. And there's nothing on this earth that compares to it. There's nothing on this earth that compares to it. You walking in a field of daisies on a sunny day instead of going to church, seeing God in the daisies has nothing to do with it. It's everything that you can't imagine. It's eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered into the heart, into the imagination, into the brain of any human being ever what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what's coming for you. And guess who those who love him are? Jesus Christ is the only one who loved him. But Jesus Christ encompasses everybody. We could even say Jesus Christ is the only one who believed in him. But his faith comprises everybody. His decision comprises everybody. I'm saved because Jesus Christ made a decision for me. That's why I'm saved. I'm saved because God approves of his son, Jesus Christ. So, let's look at Titus 3, 4. Just this is what I promised at the first message, so entering into the Delta phase. Look what it says, Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness, that's Christotes, kindness, and the philanthropy of God, our Savior, appeared. I'm not using a fancy word. That's what the Greek says, philanthropia. God's, you could almost say, how do you define philanthropy when it has to do with God? I have to say, oh, how he loves human beings. Oh, how he loves humanity. The ungodly, the unrighteous, his enemies, sinners. While we were still sinners, all humanity in all of its time under sin, Christ died. 
While we were his enemies, God reconciled us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are justified by his blood, Romans 5, 9. While we were so sick as to be utterly incapable of producing either the will or the work, Christ died for us. And that means both on behalf of us and in place of us. Look at anywhere you look. And guess what this love is? 5'6", 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", 5'11", 5'11". love of Christ from which we can never be separated. 8'35", 8'39". What kind of love is this? The kind of love that lays its life down for a friend? The kind of life that... The love that lays its life down for a good person that dies for its country? No. This is the kind of love that God demonstrated in that while we were still in the activity and complicity and compliance with every kind of sinfulness, Christ died. This is the love that is poured out into our hearts by God the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This love for the other, the other. Not just for people like us. Not just for people of our same race or ethnicity or roots or background. Not people of our own clique. But the other. Who is other than God is the sinner, the ungodly, the unrighteous. The unrighteous are other than God who is righteous. He dies for them. This is the love, Romans 5, 5, that's poured out into our hearts. If that's not the way that love is demonstrated, we do not have the love of God. As Jesus said it to the Pharisees, he said one thing about them. He said, I know you. The love of God isn't in you. In John 5, 42. In John 8, he said, you seek to kill me. They said, well, our father's Abraham. He said, I beg to differ. Your father's the devil. By that time, Jesus didn't care what he's. He's probably thinking, it doesn't matter what I say now. They're going to kill me anyways. The way things are going, they're going to crucify me. Wait a minute. That was John Lennon. But that's. I hate that song because he doesn't use the Lord's name properly. But I have said that statement before. Certain times and certain months of the year in which certain things have happened, I've sat in my living room studying the word and closed the book and finally said, the way things are going, they're going to crucify me. And the Lord always replies, well, if they do, you're going to rise again, aren't you? Okay. Thank you for being the lifter of my head again. Don't even give me a chance to be self-piteous anymore. I don't have a moment for self-pity. Thanks. Three, four, but when the kindness and the philanthropy of God, our Savior, appeared, epiphany is the word here, there was a moment when it appeared. There was a crisis moment when it appeared. There was a crisis when it appeared, a moment when it appeared. When the kindness and the philanthropy of who? God, our what? Savior, appeared. He saved us. My question is this. When did he save us? Answer, when the kindness and philanthropy, his love for humankind, appeared. When did it appear? In Christ's incarnation, in Christ's death, in Christ's burial, 
in his resurrection and ascension, in the Christ event. When was I saved? In the Christ event. For by grace, you, ha- you were saved. When? When the philanthropy of God appeared. When did it appear? Mount Golgotha, that's where it appeared. When were you saved? When God's philanthropy appeared. When did God's philanthropy appear? Long before I was born. For by grace, you were saved through faithfulness, not yours, but the faithfulness of another. How could it be yours? You weren't even around. You were saved when the philanthropy of God appeared, when the kindness and the philanthropy of God made an appearance. When was that? When Christ appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself, that's when that appeared. When the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world, that's when I was saved. Couldn't have been by my will, couldn't have been by my works, couldn't have been by me willing, couldn't have been by me running, had to be by, let's finish the verse. He saved us, not on the ground of any righteous deeds we have done but on the ground of his own mercy. Mercy. He did it by means of the bath of regeneration. Paul and Genesee used another time in the scripture when Jesus speaks of the regeneration of all creation in Matthew 19, 28. Regeneration. We were saved when God's appearance of his philanthropy happened. But it was made real when the Holy Spirit gave us a bath called regeneration. And you knew it. If you're in the desert and you get dunked in a cold oasis, you know it. I'm saved, I'm regenerated or born again or born from above, call it whatever you want. It happened to me in January of 1972 And it didn't happen because I ran. It happened because God caught up with me and I stopped running. It is not of him that wills, not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God who showeth mercy. When the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not on the ground of any righteous deeds we had done, and it means any righteous deeds we could do, have done, or are doing. But on the ground of his own mercy. He did it by means of the bath of regeneration. And that palingenesia means again Genesis. If regeneration is an act of creation by God, how do you participate in it? If God called everything into existence from non-existence, what did non-existence have to do with coming into existence? Well, that's pretty philosophical. If our salvation is God calling into being that which didn't exist before, then what did we have to do with it if we were non-existent as a people? Once you were not a people at all, says Peter. In 1 Peter 2.11, once you were not a people at all, 2.10. Once you weren't even a people. But now you're the people of God. Why is that? Well, Peter would say this, because once you didn't receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now you're the people of God because of God's abundant mercy. God's great love, Romans 5 through 8, 
God's abundant mercy, Romans 9 through 11, climaxing with God's great mercy, beginning with God's great love in Romans 5. But let's finish this, Romans, Titus 3. I told you it's interpretive of Romans. He did it, or he made it effective. Let's just say this. The salvation happened at Calvary and at resurrection of Christ. But he made it effective by the bath of regeneration. And the renewal brought about by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, says verse 6, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why did he pour out the Spirit abundantly? Why that metaphor? Because he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. All flesh, all flesh. All flesh, all flesh. Joel 2.28, he pours his Spirit out on all flesh. And... Isaiah 40 and verse 5, all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. What's the effect of the Spirit being poured out on flesh? They see the salvation. They experience the salvation of the Lord. They experience in time through regeneration the salvation that was won in A.D. 30 on Mount Calvary when God's gracious kindness and philanthropy of man appeared. You can't say what God's philanthropy means. You only look at the cross. You can only know Christ and him crucified and see, oh, how much he loves you and me and all humanity. There's the lyrics, write the music, get the money. Then it says, so that being, now let's not, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. And the renewal brought about by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by that grace, meaning the grace that his philanthropic action demonstrated in the Christ event being saved by that grace what what grace the grace of God's philanthropic action in the cross being saved justified by that grace we would become heirs inheritors with the confident expectation of eternal life That doesn't mean we don't have it now. It means that though we have it now, that gift of eternal life or the life of the coming age, we are anticipating having it in incorruptible, immortal human bodies, which we don't have yet. Even if you're really into bodybuilding, Beth, you still don't, you know, you don't have that yet. So in closing, the seeming uncertainty in the phrase which makes this passage so difficult to some people. The seeming uncertainty in the phrase that's translated, so that we might become heirs, it says. It makes it sound like you're justified, and if you're really obedient or really lucky, you might become heirs. It's not that at all. That's not what it's saying. The Greek context and text doesn't say that. So there's the seeming uncertainty in this phrase in verse 7, so that we might or may become heirs, is removed by understanding that this was from the standpoint of God's purpose. In other words, God looked at it this way. I'm going to demonstrate my philanthropic action of the triune God in giving my son so that it will be demonstrated on Calvary with the result that the human race would be saved, and then one by one I'll tick them off, and check them off by regeneration so that, so that 
by their regeneration, they become heirs of eternal life and they have hope or a confident expectation toward it. What he's saying is this should result in you confidently, joyously expecting the last judgment to be the best day of your life, not dreading it with fear like false gospel preachers try to tell you today. People just need hell. They need the fear of hell to behave or they need hell to just be so glad that somebody they hate is going there. They just need hell. And the need of hell reveals the most desperate kind of wicked heart. And thank God the God loved us so much that even on our wicked, desperate, evil, wicked heart that want other people to go to hell, he saved us. He loved us. Why do you need hell? Ask me that and I'll say, hell, I don't know. Consequently, what this is saying is, this was from the standpoint of God's purpose, which has now come to fruition. God did all this so that we would become heirs, and we have become heirs. And then he gives us the gift of faith, the gift of faith after justification. For what reason? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, isn't it? Define faith for me. Okay, says the writer to the Hebrews, one time I'll define faith in all the Bible. It is the assurance of things hoped for. So God not only gives us this certain destiny of glory, he gives us the gift of faith so we can earnestly hope for it, and that gives life the life worth livingness. That makes life worth living. Hope is the spice of that life. So the answer to the question, when did God save us? When his kindness and philanthropy appeared. And that kindness and philanthropy, here's a preview of things to come. That kindness and that philanthropy will make its appearance again without sin having to be dealt with. Hebrews 9.28 Those who wait for him, he will appear without sin. That is, he doesn't have to come and demonstrate that love by becoming sin. He comes having become sin to show us how much he loves us in his universal appearing. So it is given to every man once to die, and then the judgment is one of the happiest things I could say to somebody. It's not a threat. It's not dread leading people to psychiatric treatment. It is hope. Joyous hope, a statement of joy and assurance, not of dread and threat. In Rome, therefore, Hebrews 9, 27, where we're going to go soon, not today, closing now. It's used to put an accent on the one time, once and for all, sacrifice of Christ for all humankind. The fact that he says once is illustrated by the fact that he says, how many times do you die? You say once. How many times do human beings die? Once. Somebody says, but I know somebody who died and then they were revived. Then they didn't die. Dying means that the, you're done. That's what that means. And Christ died and was done and was raised. Only one person died the absolute wages of sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead. So, well, how many times do you die? Once. And then what's after that? 
a judgment, a renewing, justifying, emancipating, transforming, life-giving judgment comes after that. But what's the point? What is, what's he getting at? The once, just like people die once, Christ died once to take away sin. It happened once. It doesn't happen again. He doesn't take away your sin every time you rebound. He took away your sin, all of it, and it won't be done again. It's finished. And so is my message. Amen. See some of you Wednesday.